Welcome to this episode of Resisting the Dragon's Beast. I am the author, Pastor Michael Zarling, and I'm here with the editor of the book, Pastor Peter Hagen. How are you doing, Peter? Great. How are you? <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, we're going to be talking about Chapter 4 on the Magdeburg Confession. That's page 55. But before we get to that, I thought we'd talk about what's been happening in the last few weeks uh, that I've gone to uh, present at a church and then also present at a pastor's conference and then listen to some papers at the Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary Symposium. So we'll talk about the the conference that I was at. And it was interesting in that when I presented this at my conference, I felt like uh, there were... 17 there were 19 guys there at the conference and 17 of them did not agree with me and the other two were one other guy who was pretty quiet and myself but that was that was january of 2022 uh, i think uh and so things were still raw and fresh i think it was a little more favorable at this conference, I had someone there, a pastor, that when I walked in the door, he shook my hand and said, go get him. <laughs> and I just, the way the conference went is I talked for an hour on the first four chapters. We ate lunch, came back, and I talked for another 30 minutes on the fifth chapter. And then we opened it up for an hour of discussion. And then one half hour, I finished up the other chapters of the book. But there were a couple of guys that were riding me pretty hard in this. Uh, one of the things that I may not have done very well, and you can tell me if I did this okay in the book, Peter, is that they made it seem like I was saying that if, because they act, one guy actually said this. So he goes, you're saying, Michael, that if you don't like something the government does, you just don't have to do it. Okay. It, do you think I give that impression, Peter, in the book? I, I I think the having read it, you know, a few times, and I'm trying to weave together. On the one hand, there is the the Christian uh, requirement to submit to the government, and you say that consistently. You say that throughout, um, and that you know our biggest issue is that we don't talk through the difference between submit and obey. You know, like we'll bend over backwards explaining Ephesians 5, um, but then have just a blanket state statement boilerplate on Romans 13 um, when it comes to that verb submit. And so you're, you're very straightforward. You know, we, we, don't have, we don't have cause or scriptural justification um, for rebellion um, or simply resisting on everything. However, the fact that... Um, the government and worldly authorities will be influenced by Satan for his own ends um, should make us cautious, um, especially when it comes to, you know, thinking through how we how we apply that submit uh, clause. And I think, you know, at least my impression is that you're trying to present enough information to say, well, let's think this through um, my my addition for better or for worse. Um, and this is probably where it starts to get cloudy, especially if we have no knowledge of um, civics in U.S. history. Uh, my contribution is that um, 
the First Amendment gives a heck of a lot more latitude in this than Romans 13 does. And, um, and so there, there's those two elements there where the First Amendment will allow many things. And, um, and that's not just in constitution and constitutional law, but also case law where the Supreme Court has made specific applications. Um, and that, that was probably the, maybe the, the weakness in the argument was the part that I added <laughs> to say, well, there's a whole lot that is permissible under U.S. law right. that a Christian would be reluctant to to do according to scripture. Yeah, and, you know, and thinking back on it is, I think they were confusing, at least the one guy was confusing what I was saying about the church and being persecuted in Revelation chapter 13 and what we as Christians may have to put up with. And I think he was confusing the two. I don't think I was. Uh, I, I did think that maybe he didn't read the book. And so he, because, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so I, I think that was part of it. And what I did say when he, he challenged me on that, I said, well, there are times that I might just, you know, if I'm being persecuted or put down as an individual Christian citizen, I'll turn the other cheek. I may not like it, but I'll turn the other cheek. That's what Jesus calls me to do. But if it's this is coming for my wife and my daughters and my extended family, then I am called as the, the father, the husband, the protector of the family. Then I'm going to put myself between uh, who you know the government or whomever who is coming for my my family because that is what I'm called to do in the fourth commandment. And mm -hmm. so whereas I might be willing to put up with things, I am not going to say that my family has to put up with things. So I, and then he goes he thought about that a little bit. And I think together with that, I know there's at least one place, um, probably multiple places in the book where you say. Um, you know, there, there is a time to, to not stand up for whatever right the government gives us. And there is a time where the Christian should be prepared to suffer the consequences, mm -hmm. even if it is for a lawful resistance. Um, that doesn't mean that the government will always make a right judgment and, and or, you know, not follow through. Oh, you're exercising your First Amendment rights, then I'll just leave you alone. Um, they still have the right to, to prosecute or to pursue um, pursue somebody legally. And so when we, when it comes to the idea of resistance, we need to have in mind, um, am I willing to, to bear that cost? And, and what is the, the, the benefit of this resistance now versus, um, versus not? Right. And then I complimented the, the pastor who had preached the sermon for the conference. Cause I told him afterwards, I, said, I don't hear sermons like that too often from our pulpits. Cause he started right away with COVID and, mm -hmm you know, what it was like three years ago and what it might be like now. And he was preaching on Daniel 6 of Daniel in the lion's den, but he referenced Daniel 1, which I had studied just two weeks ago for a Bible study we're doing here at Water of Life and called Stand, Standing Up for Our Faith. And there, how Daniel does not uh, he, you know, he's a teenager and he has been brought into Babylonian captivity with his three friends who are given the Babylonian name Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're told to eat the, the king's feast. 
but Daniel knows at least three things that the king's feast is probably not properly prepared. It may not be where all the blood is drained, according to Jewish sacra- uh, ceremonial law, that it could be unclean foods that they're not supposed to eat, and then that the food and the wine would be sacrificed to pagan gods before being brought onto the king's table. All of those are forbidden by the Jews. So Daniel talks to his advisor and says, how about if I just eat vegetables? Now, personally, I think that's a miserable existence. <laughs> the, the beautiful thing is the Hebrew word there for vegetables carries with it things that are sown like bread, you know, like wheat and grains for bread. So I could live on bread, you know, bread and the, the nine vegetables they do like. But I think that's an important point there that he brought up in the sermon and I brought up in Bible study is Daniel resists. He does not revolt. He does not rebel against the king and try to overthrow him or even throw things in his face. He is very respectful, but saying, but I can't do this. And I think that's the time that we have to do this. And thankfully, one of the two brothers that was giving me a hard time, he found me in the parking lot as I was leaving. And and we had a nice talk. And one of the things, one of the last things I said to him was that, you know, I was very close to taking my call to California. And, you know, in California, I'm very concerned about this, that the governor has made a mandate that there are no gas powered engines going to be allowed in the entire state by 2035. So it all has to be electric. But if you know anything about California, and I don't know how much you know, Peter, but they don't have the grid to do that, you know, with Mm -hmm. EV cars and then, you know, everything else that they have going on, they're not going to have the grid ready. So I just asked him, so if you're a resident of California and you know this, just common sense, do you start pushing back on the government now? You Do you resist as a citizen, not as a pastor, but as a citizen, because you're concerned that if this goes through in 2035, you are literally living in the dark ages? So that's a good question, um, because, you know, my, my concern, um, this would go under under an entirely different rabbit hole, but there's it, it's similar to similar to currency. Um, where you you print currency, the currency is in circulation. They control how much is in circulation, and that basically helps to control the value. The rest of the value is set by the market. Um, And a printed currency can change hands, and there's an exchange of value. You have a digital currency, um, and there's only one decentralized digital currency that that I know of, that that'll be for like the Bitcoin podcast for a different time in a different place. Um, but if you have a a digital currency that go that is not decentralized, then somebody has the ability to to turn it off, turn it on, to limit where it is used, how it is used, and um, and electrically, um, you know, electricity can be a similar thing, where you can turn a fourteen hour road trip down to Florida into two weeks before you even get there. Um, at least that's where the technology is at now. And, and my concern is how are they going to preserve at least our, our American concept of freedom of movement 
um, with electric cars that we currently have with gasoline cars. And also, if there is some addition of a digital currency, how are they going to preserve the freedom of, um, of a free market um, where you know China has had a digital currency for a while and they, they set an expiration date? You have to use it by this particular date. Um, and you can only have so many of your, your social credits or your you know, digital dollars um, spent on, on this category or that category. Um, and, and I mean, it sounds, it sounds like it's fear-mongering except for the fact that it is um, something that actually has happened. And you know, as, as a Christian who knows history, <laughs> I don't want to put undue trust in the government when the government is, here's the big thing that the power of the government, according to, you know, large catechism commandments four and six, the power of the government is derived from God's command to parents and God's command to children to honor those parents. And I think when we get detached from that idea, um, then we see the government as some amorphous concept that, that God has instituted, but no, it's, it's tangible because it is connected to the authority that God has already established within the home. And, um, and I, at least for me, that like knitting that idea back together is one of the bigger, bigger challenges um, before we even get to the talk of, of climate change, electric cars, solar energy and digital dollars like that is way down the line. But today, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be ignorant of those things, um, but today to see, well, is the government doing for my family and trying to dictate for my family what is actually in our system? my responsibility. Yeah, and one of the things I brought up at the conference was that the night before when I had given a talk at a local congregation, a pastor had been there and talking to me before the con before the presentation started, he said, "Well, the governor of Minnesota, he said made it easier for them because they shut everything down." You know, churches, businesses, and so forth. And I didn't say anything then, but when I thought about it that night, I brought it up at the conference and I said, you know, this is what that pastor said. But when I thought about it, is the government really didn't make everything equal, like he said, because there were still essential workers. And then I asked the brothers, so if there were essential workers and then the churches were closed, what was it saying about the churches? They're non-essential. Mm -hmm. And I said, perhaps that's one of the reasons why we've had such a hard time getting members to come back to church or reaching out to non-members because we closed our churches down saying, uh, or at least allowing the government to say we were non-essential. And yeah, then and I had a couple of brothers that were shaking their heads a little bit. Oh, good, say, good. And it's kind of like, um, you know, whether, whether it's that or here in Ohio, they you know, Ohio drivers are terrible with the snow. We all know that. Um, and so they, they can declare a snow emergency where only essential workers are allowed on the road. You know, if you are going to the hospital, then you um, are allowed on the road. And I mean, you could be flexible enough with that law to have pretty much any justification that you need, but that's beside the point um, that whether it's the, the shutdown of COVID or a delineation of what is essential and what is not. Um, if the government says, well, it's the, the big box stores, the liquor stores are open to be closed, 
that is not making a delineation or that is making a delineation that is not permitted in the first amendment it is in this case disfavoring religion um, rather than making a law favoring religion but legally that's the same concept it's just the other side of the same coin um and so it's like okay should we resist on the fact that that we sincerely believe in a word and sacrament ministry that requires tangible people gathering together or other side of the coin should we resist on the fact that this is not in line with our first amendment rights as citizens well yes yeah <laughs> both yeah and what you said before about the first amendment i think is a good point it was one i brought up too is that uh, romans 13 right we submit to the governing authorities so when the governing authorities and i made a big point of you know who are the governing authorities in america well, it's the Constitution because every governor and president and mayor and so forth, they have to say they submit to the Constitution. It, that's the, the top. That's the governing authority in America. And when our own governing authority says in its First Amendment, you have the freedom to speech, religion, and so forth, and then basically the freedom to resist, well, then... Is it wrong for us as Christians to resist when our own founding documents give us that legal right to resist? You know, and that was something that was interesting in watching the brothers and just kind of shaking their heads. And I think those that had bought the book and read it ahead of time were you know, a little more open to this. Uh, and, and with... You're talking about the Minnesota governor. I was talking with the dis district president. So I was talking to you know, two guys. One was a preacher. He was on one side. And then the pastor at the church we were at, he was on the other side. And they were shaking their heads and smiling with my presentation. Of, Phew, at least I'm not you know, you know, uh, just blowing this out of the water. And then the district president was there, and he didn't kick me out of the church body right away. Yeah. Uh, in fact, he said, he said toward the end of the conversation was what I'm picking up on this is especially two things. One is that we should keep talking about this. And at least in their conference and circuits, they talked about this. In our mm -hmm. conference and circuit, we didn't, you know, hence the book. And then he also said, what I picked up is we just need to stay in our lanes. Pastors and people stay in their lane. And the government authorities stay in their lane. When we get out of our lanes, that's when we get in trouble. And I said, I'm going to steal that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, then in it's the exact same. Oh, going back to no, um, Minnesota a couple of years ago. Oh, go ahead. No. You, 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 I'll, I'll ago, finish up what um, I was saying with Minnesota after you talk. All right. All right. Good. Um, a couple of years ago, um, Pastor Nate Nass, present, this was shortly after he had um, graduated from seminary, and he presented the content of his thesis um, talking about ministering to um, illegal aliens. And, and the thing that he kept coming back to um, was that, you know, the government and the local, the local government, your police, your mayor, all those people, none of those local government arms are going to are coming around and they don't know what to do with illegal immigrants because it's not their jurisdiction and they don't have the authority over them they can't like arrest them and deport them that's not how this works um and and so what, what he was saying well if the government doesn't care and these people are coming to my church then i'm going to serve them i'm not going to march them down to the police station precinct and turn them in 
and uh, and he he got a lot of pushback. So I mean, in one sense, it's nice to hear that Minnesota hasn't changed. Um, sorry to all those who live there. Um, but at the other hand, it, that it's the same it's the same basic idea that you are called as a minister of the gospel, um, and they are called as officers of the law. And if they are doing a shoddy job of of implementing and fulfilling their office, that's on them. Um, but we will we'll preach the gospel. Oh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and then when the conference was over and I was talking to this pastor and the district president, the district president had brought up going to uh, you know the Minnesota governor and how he had you know closed everything down, but then he started opening things up at the same time keeping the churches closed. And if I understand this correctly, the Minnesota district president uh, then he wrote a letter, as well as other church body leaders wrote letters and communicated to with the governor, and uh, about not opening up. Well, I found this out later on from a pastor in Minnesota. He said he filled me in more on the story. He said, "Yeah, that the Roman Catholic Church, their leaders were meeting with the governor for three days, and about a day and a half in, the governor just relented and let everything open." And I said, whoa. And he said, yeah, the Catholic Church in Minnesota has a lot of authority, a lot of sway. And and I think that's where we have our, you know, I'm hoping, hoping they're not using political authority because we know the Catholic Church can do that from history and so forth. Mm-hmm. But yeah. whether it's a Catholic Church or our own Wisconsin church body or Wisconsin Synod with the district presidents and the president of the synod, reaching out to governors and so forth. That's all okay. They're staying in their lanes, but they're saying, all right, this is impacting us in our right-hand kingdom, what your decisions are in the left-hand kingdom. I think that's that's a good yeah, way of definitely. staying in the lanes. And and if there is no if there is no change on that, you know, when they eventually get back to to services to to be able to point and say, Governor Governor X Y Z, you know, I know it's not Jesse Ventura, but as an example, you know, Governor Ventura, the wrestler, um, he is the one who who did who did not act very favorably toward our churches and requiring that we stay closed while while all the liquor bars and or you know all the bars and the uh, the the big box stores were allowed to reopen. Um, that's a statement of fact, and if that if that is something that people are thinking about, if they take that information and say, "Well, maybe I won't vote for him next time," that is consistent, entirely consistent with living as a citizen, um, and based on those facts. And and if that voice wasn't heard by the governor, or if the people didn't actually see what was going on, like the reason that you know that their parish wasn't opening was because they're trying to obey this mandate that did that apparently supposedly did not allow them to open um well then let the let the governor decide if he wants to follow his own um policies and decisions and follow them through or if he's a little bit more concerned about um the ballot box (laughs) that's how the system is supposed to work yeah and then uh, one other thing on that conference you know the one pastor that was really giving me a hard time i was Ten minutes in the presentation, he was already raising his hand, and I said, uh, "We'll we'll take questions later on," because I would have gotten anything if we would have started debating in the first chapter. But he mm-hmm. he said uh, he didn't like the book, and he was very 
forth right with it. He goes, yeah, I didn't like the book because it wasn't a doctrinal thesis where you presented both sides. And I said, well, I take issue with uh, with that because uh, what I really wanted to say, you know, be snarky is, well, you can do that in your own book. But I didn't. <laughs> I said, uh, this isn't a doctrinal thesis where I'm presenting both sides. That wasn't the purpose of the book. And I did say, uh, you, it's not fair for you to tell me what the purpose of writing my book is. And so he yeah. kind of was taken back a little bit by that. But then I said, the purpose of the book was not to present both sides necessarily of, I said, we ha we know Romans 13 of submit and the fourth commandment of honor those in authority over you and give to Caesar what is Caesar. We know that very well. What we don't know very well, and so that's why I uh, pushed for that and wrote so much about it in the book, is the other side of Revelation 13 of the God's servant switching sides and becoming a servant of Satan. We don't know very well that the, like you keep saying, Peter, of the fourth commandment refers first of all to the family, then to other authorities. And then thirdly, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we don't give to Caesar what does not belong to Caesar. Those three things. And so that's that's what I was trying to do, especially in that first chapter of the book, is we know very well the doctrine of submission. We don't know very well the doctrine of resistance. And so that's the purpose of the book. Not to say, hey, we have to resist. I think like Luther, we are resistant to resist. But we... we we need to know that it's not necessarily sinful to resist. It's sinful to revolt and rebel. Mm -hmm. And that, and that it's always the details that matter um, where, you know, what we, what we love and like to look for is just give me a policy. You know, when, when we cross threshold A, B, and C, or when these three things happen, then I act in this way. But when this fourth thing happens, then I act in that way. And, and that is, that is simplistic. That is uneducated. And that is frankly unplugging your brain. Um, and, but we like it because it's easy. And, and so much of it, especially when you're talking about specific doctrinal applications, like how to resist and when to resist and to what degree do you resist and what is the basis for your resistance, um, as well as wrapping in some of the legal side that, you know, what are the repercussions that I can face under the law for this? Um, that takes a whole lot more understanding, compassion, um, education, and then, you know, confidence in each other that, you know, things may, things will be different from state to state, that different states have different governors and from country to country. And often there, there are details that, that we don't know about somebody else's circumstance, as well as details that probably won't come to light for another year or two or, or 60, if it's like, you know, um, some of the, the government documentation. Yeah. And with that, uh, then we'll switch, uh, switch to a week later to the symposium that Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary had. And I wasn't able to go to the second day because I had a funeral. But uh, that first day, it, I thought there were excellent papers uh, presented by a Martin Luther College professor and then a Wisconsin Lutheran College professor. But in talking with another brother 
about this. He said the the difficulty is both of those guys, as smart as they are, they've been in those institutions for a very long time. They didn't have to deal with this on a pastoral level in 2020 and beyond. They didn't have to face the difficult decisions of application like you just talked about. They could just say, well, this is what my school is doing. Therefore, this is what I'm doing. And and, and then talking with his brother, too, it seems like all three papers and to be fair, we have neither one of us have read the third paper yet, which was by a parish pastor, but is that they all presented like one side. And, you know, like my book would be the other side, but the other side wasn't presented at all. And he challenged me, I should have gotten up at the microphone and say, hey, here's the other side. It's in a book I, I heard about. <laughs> yeah. But but that's the thing. my link. <laughs> yeah. But that's the thing that would have been beneficial. And he actually wrote that uh, in his critique because the seminary had asked us to critique the symposium. And he said, yeah, we didn't have both sides. And when they had, after the paper, and then they had a reaction to the paper by a seminary professor, and then they opened it up to the brothers to go up to the microphones. And it seemed like the pastors there were asking more questions about resistance. And I leaned back to one of my brothers behind me and I said, hey, it sounds like these guys need to read a certain book. Well, they got to buy it first, buy it and then read it. Yeah, Because they were more in line, I think, just listening to their comments of there are times to resist, but that's not what was presented in the papers. And, and I guess that's the interesting thing about like church history and then also um, academia versus versus the parish. Um, church history is really helpful because you can you can draw you know see how see how they practice their doctrine. You can draw applications from the circumstances there, and um, and tease out some of the nuances and the detail. Um, but there is a difference between you know serving in serving in the parish where people are looking to you to say what do we do now? What do we do with this? And what about that? versus serving in an academic capacity, all of whom are far more brilliant than you, than, than, than me at least, <laughs> probably not you, um, but serving in an academic capacity, they've got a president and then a governing board who will set the policy for everybody else. Um, and they, they don't have to think through all of the details and, and you know, for better or for worse, and they don't have to live with the decisions that come from that. That if you are living and working in a parish in you know in a church for you know five, 10, 15, 20 years, ten years from now you'll be you'll be still dealing with some of the fallout or the growth from different decisions that you did, um, things that you did do or classes that you didn't teach, um, people that you did visit or people that you didn't. That there's a practice to the doctrine. That doctrine is never just in a vacuum. And even if it is in a vacuum, you know, in a sense, you know, an academic setting where the, the president and the governing board set the policy, um, then it takes that much more effort to say, okay, but what are the circumstances where this isn't so cut and dry? Yeah. And, and there I think of that one of the professors had, during the question and answer had brought up and He's a very passionate guy. You know, I like that about him. But he was 
disappointed as he was remembering a situation years ago. He had spoken at a men's conference. And then he said, you know, here it is. We're all dealing with spiritual things at this men's conference. And then both mornings for breakfast, he's gathered at the table and he's listening to these guys talking about their Second Amendment rights. He was like, we should be talking about spiritual things. And I would not get up and push back in a public setting like that. But if I was talking to him one-on-one, I might have said, what's wrong with that? They're they're at in the right-hand kingdom at that men's conference, but they also live in the left-hand kingdom. Let them talk about left-hand kingdom things. And I think sometimes we forget that when we're pastors sitting in our office, that our people are constantly living in the in the left-hand kingdom and bringing the right-hand kingdom into it, where a lot of times you and I, Peter, we're blessed. We're dealing with the right-hand kingdom almost all day. Then we get in our car and we drive in the left-hand kingdom for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And and I guess, um, and together with that, then it's, um, you know, whether it's the second amendment or the, the fourth or the first, um, you know, search and seizure, you know, if, if, if we really looked at things like the Patriot Act, we would be like wondering where did that fourth amendment go? Um, but just generally it, it really does get down to the same way of how do you interpret a text that even though, you know, the presenting discussion is, is talking about, you know, the second amendment, um, the bigger question behind it is how do you interpret a text? And biblically, you know, these men are only talking about it because they interpret the Bible and the Constitution in the same basic way. Like, there's at least something there that you can go with, even if you aren't a, a fan um, or an aficionado of, of reading about the Second Amendment or, or any of that. Because um, it's part of our world. Right. And I did uh, put on the, the one professor's wall because he had commented on it he had taken a picture being at the symposium and afterwards he said well i wasn't kicked out of the church body for false doctrine it was a good day so and i told him hey i liked especially three parts of his paper because he brought up the magdeburg confession dietrich bonhoeffer and the bennett law three things that are in my book so We'll take a couple minutes and just touch on the Magdeburg Confession because that was something that was brought up at the conference I was at that one of the pastors said, you know, I appreciate this, Michael, because I'd heard about the Magdeburg Confession, but I hadn't read it until I read your book. And if we're going to look at the doctrine of resistance, we have a Lutheran doctrine of resistance, and but we just don't know it. And that's where I begin the book or begin this chapter that, you know, I think I grew up in the best time for cartoons, you know, the late seventies, early eighties, because one of the cartoons that was on, on Saturday mornings was GI Joe. Do you ever watch GI Joe, Peter? Nope. Nope. Yeah. You're too young. Uh, It was a really good cartoon, not, not good movies, but a good cartoon. And at the end of every episode, because it was the 80s, so you had to have a lesson, a moral to every cartoon, because really the cartoons were to sell toys. 
and people mm-hmm. knew that. So we had to put a moral on. And so at the end of every G.I. Joe, the Joes, the soldiers, would be with a group of kids, and the kids would do something wrong. The Joes would correct them. And then uh, the kids would say, and now we know. And then everyone would join in, the Joes and the kids, saying, and knowing is half the battle. Well, the part of the the part of resistance is we don't know about the Magdeburg Confession. So uh, since knowing is half the battle, let's let you know a little bit about the Magdeburg Confession. <laughs> so uh, we talked last time about how Luther and the other reformers, the Lutheran princes and so forth, realized that uh, elect that the emperor charles v was not happy with them and so he was going to threaten them and he waited until shortly after luther died he died on february 18th of 1546 so a few months later on june 7th of 1546 uh, the emperor signed a treaty with the pope and the pope uh, gave the emperor 12,000 troops. That's a lot of soldiers. Uh, and they were going to be used to to squash the seven Lutheran princes. And uh, you know, they, the Lutheran princes had joined into the small Caldic League so that they had a united force, but they were quickly squashed two of them jailed and so forth. And it didn't help that one of the Lutheran princes, Maurice, was a traitor, and he switched sides and went with the Pope and the Emperor, except, and they conquered all the Lutheran territories except the city of Magdeburg. So I'm going to test you here, Peter. Why couldn't they uh, defeat the city of Magdeburg? Um, Is it a city on a hill? They had water inside. <laughs> they had a wall around the city. They had a wall around the city. They had yeah. they, they had water a water source inside. They must have um, had a water source, yes. Uh, but aliens. the big th- <laughs> the big thing is it was the it was a walled city, and so they were able to last for four hundred days. And so some of the Lutheran pastors and some of them very good friends of Luther had come to the city of Magde- Magdeburg and then they wrote their confession uh, called obviously the Magdeburg Confession. And some of the questions I had while I was writing this book from other brothers is that they said, well, the Magdeburg Confession is not in our formula of Concord with the small and large catechisms, the small called articles, the formula of Concord, the Augsburg Confession, the apology to the Augsburg Confession, and so forth. Uh, And the right, it's not in there. Uh, Do you know why it's not in there, Peter? No. No, I didn't either. So I asked Professor Brug, because he's a pretty smart guy. Uh, So what Professor Brug had said was that the, those other confessions I mentioned, those were agreed on by the entire Lutherans because they affected all of us. But this one was not necessarily put into the the Book of Concord because it was a it was a specific doctrine on one thing on 
uh, on the doctrine of resistance. And then uh, I, I do have a footnote, uh, and I think I might have gotten this from Professor Brugge. He said, it's interesting that the Scandinavian Lutherans did not use the formula of Concord as part of their confession simply because they weren't having those kinds of theological debates among the Lutherans in Scandinavia. It isn't that they disagreed with the formula of Concord. It was merely that the Augsburg confession was sufficient for them. Yeah, uh, and so in other words, it's, it's status in the, uh, in the Book of Concord or not doesn't is doesn't necessarily say that it is a, a you know symbolic Lutheran document a confessional Lutheran document that is in line with the Lutheran doctrine or not yeah and and the big thing is is and I I challenged this with the the pastors at the conferences because again most of them I don't think had ever read the Magdeburg Confession. And I told them, don't just take what I've written in the book. There's two excellent books on the Magdeburg Confession. You can find those in my bibliography. Uh, one is uh, just simply titled the Magdeburg Confession, <clears throat> 13th of April, 1550 AD. And then more of one that's on a commentary on the Magdeburg Confession called Tyranny and Resistance, the Magdeburg Confession in the Lutheran tradition. So I encourage you, everyone to uh, go to their favorite bookstore or online bookstore and purchase those books if they're more interested in the deeper study of the Magdeburg Confession. Uh, and then the big thing with the Magdeburg Confession is even though we may not subscribe to it, like Peter, you and I, we say we subscribe to the formula of Concord when we become pastors. We don't say that to the Magdeburg Confession, but if we read it and it agrees with Scripture, we agree with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I guess we could wrap it up here in just talking about the, the pastor's reasoning for writing this confession, and then we'll go deeper into the Magdeburg Confession next time, is they... The pastors who wrote this confession, they saw it as a connection to Luther's warning to my dear German people. It's just a continuation that Luther had started. Uh, and it says uh, uh, that the reason for the pastors writing the Magdeburg Confession, quote, uh, they did not simply write to edify their readers, but to reassure the convinced to persuade the unsure and to convince the opposed. That's from tyranny and resistance. And then there's uh, three Bible verses that they quoted in the introduction to the Magdeburg Confession. And then there's a meaning behind each of those verses. So the first one is Psalm 119, verse 46. Quote, I spoke to your testimonies in the sight of kings and was not put to shame. So that's the rationale for the writing by the pastors, just like David uh, go or Nathan as pastor, he goes to David and speaks to him about the testimonies of God. So the pastors felt they're going to their king, their emperor, and speaking to him. The next one is Romans thirteen three: Rulers are not a terror for good works, but for evil. Uh, and there they are asserting that the emperor is being the aggressor. And so the pastor's resistance is defensive by nature. So rulers are not to be a terror for good. In fact, I had posted this yesterday on my uh, Resisting the Dragon's Beast Facebook page. 
another brother had shared with me a story about a German family that had moved here to the United States, I think like 15 years ago, a very large family, about homeschooling because in Germany, it's illegal to homeschool. You must go to a state school. So they had fled for religious persecution. And now the United States government, without any warning, wants to deport them. And what I, I just had a very short commentary uh, by sharing the article was at the same time, we're allowing all kinds of illegal aliens to flood into our nation. And that doesn't seem to be very good for our nation. But now you have a, a very good family that is providing good to the community around them. Now they're threatened with deportation. And like the, the pastors in Magdeburg, what happens, I asked this question on Facebook, is what happens when the rulers bear the sword, not for our good, but for our bad? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and like immigration, you know, I tell people as a Lutheran pastor, um, there's no such thing as purgatory. We know that. Um, but having been through U.S. immigration, I'm not so sure. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because because we've been through it. I've been through it. Okay, and um, and justice is supposed to be blind, but um, it it never never quite is. Um, yeah, and so it it that is one of those cases where, at the very least, you know, the proverbs come to mind where where Solomon writes that you know when laws are are not enforced, the people scoff. Um, when the when they're not just laws that are applied fairly. Um, then the poor are taken advantage of and the people uh, run riot as as though the laws did not exist. Um, and I think that that at least applies to that discussion. Um, you know, it'd be fun to do a, a deep dive on their legal standing um, and, and the legal case there. Um, but at the at the very least, um, it isn't a case of of just objective law being applied universally across the board. Right. And then the third verse that they use in their introduction is Acts 9, verse 4, where Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goat. And a goat is a sharp stick to poke the ox and to get moving. So in that verse, Jesus is rebuking Saul of Tarsus because he's persecuting the church. And he has the right through being a civil authority to do so. But that doesn't mean it's good for God's people. And the Magdeburg pastors are using this verse because they're saying that the emperor is like Saul, that he is kicking against God's goad, or, and that the, he is then making himself subject to God's judgment. Uh, and then just I'll, I'll close with this part from this part of the book. Uh, so they quote or at least reference back to the Augsburg Confession, when they write, Therefore, we now have written this confession with our name and the name of our churches, the names of all men who are still openly pious and have not yet bowed their knees to Baal, who are with us in spirit and whose prayers and groans are we doubt not joined with us. 
We have done this first so that we may render a witness of the truth to Christ who is now hanging on the cross and so that we may present the necessary worship which he now urgently demands from all men. Second, so that we may strengthen our brothers in Christ wherever they are by our opinion and example. And finally, so that we may free ourselves as well from suspicion of novelty or faction and true doctrine or true worship. Anything else you want to add, Peter? I, I really like that that last um, reason for writing, to free ourselves from suspicion of novelty or faction. Um, you know, the, the accusation that you're doing something new that has never been heard of before, um, novelty, or that you're just causing divisions when it would be so much easier if you just went along with it. Um, that they that they wrote that in there. And, you know, in 500 years, give or take since, um, we see that you know church history and and people are are much the same. Um, where rather than think things through and talk things through, it's easier to to have accusations go one way or the other way, and um, and then you don't have to have the discussion. And to say, hey, these guys actually wrote this and they they dealt with people and they, they dealt with a much greater threat from their their emperor. Um, and and to say well you know maybe there is something here that we should revisit and uh and relearn yeah yeah good point especially since i think people might accuse you and me and other others that think the way we do that we're a novelty that we're new but what we're doing is no we're tying this to something old of what luther and the lutheran for reformers for example 500 years ago thought and the same thing they might think well you guys are causing division you're causing factions you know the whole pur purpose of the book is let's unite around this mm -hmm. so there aren't factions and i think that's where the reformers are doing too uh, then to wrap it up I uh, wanted to share this. I had just written this before we started recording. Uh, this is from my publisher, actually. He had talked about uh, being political. A lot of times people will say that we are not to be political. and But he's, he makes the good point in his long post that being that everything now has been made political and he calls them the status the the government they often want everything to be political so that we as christians and the church stay out of it and these are the two things that i commented on so usually i this time i quote other people i feel kind of bad i'm quoting myself here uh i wrote you're exactly right i've heard pastors say quote i preach jesus well, Jesus, John the Baptist, Paul, Peter, etc., all preached Jesus too. But they also applied Jesus' teachings to real-world situations. I think it appears very sanctified to say, I preach Jesus. But true sanctification is preaching and practicing sanctification. We do that in every setting, moral, cultural, and political. And then the second uh, post that I had is, if we in the church do not speak on what is, quote, political, unquote, then the ones who are left to speak about these important issues are pagans. If we absent ourselves from the conversation, then the devil and his forces will fill in the gap with their demonic rhetoric. So I don't know if you have any comments on my comments. No, I thought, I thought that was fantastic. Um, that, you know... When you're playing tag as a kid, you'd have like a safe space, um, you know, like we always call it ghoul, ghoul or, yep. or something. 
yeah. And, yeah, I don't know where uh, ghoul came the, from. That doesn't make any sense. Nobody yeah, right. knows. It doesn't. But that if you were there, then you couldn't be tagged and you were safe. And um, and what are we going to do? Like collect everything that is um, relates to relates to life, that relates to family, that relates to beginning of life, end of life, um, that relates to you know the Christian freedom under the law. Um, we'll just collect that all that and pile it up on Google so we can't touch it. Um, and then I could tell myself I'm still being a faithful pastor because I don't touch those things because those are political, and uh, and we are above that. Uh, yeah, but we well, live in this world. <laughs> yeah, uh, talking about that with Tag and Google reminds me of when my girls were little, littler because they're they're all little because they're five, three, and under still, and. Uh, <laughs> When I was younger, and we go to okay, the pool. Okay, is, is that taller or shorter than you? I'm not sure. That's three inches shorter at least. Once. Yeah, and the <laughs> tallest of the the tallest of the four is five three. She's the giant of the four. Uh, and but we would go to the pool, like we were in a hotel, and there weren't any other people around. We would play shark attack, so it's kind of like tag, uh, or like freeze tag, and I would grab them and I would pretend like I was gnawing on them, and then they were frozen. And then the the girls had to swim around and go and tag and then heal their sister. And then, you know, they love that. But yeah, then there was a ghoul too that they could all hide in and so forth. Uh, but you're, you're right. I think just calling everything off limits does not necessarily make it off limits. Uh, you know, I bring this out numerous times in the book that well, people will say it's political. And, but I always say it's first of all, uh, well, it's if it's political, it's before that it's cultural, and before that it's moral, and before that it's scriptural. Therefore, we should speak on everything. Uh, and a big thing that I said in the, I, I don't say, I don't think I said this at the conference, but I did in the presentation, and I have a number of the lay people nodding their heads is I don't think we do a very good job, Peter, in our churches as pastors or people of saying what we're for. You know, people on the outside think that we're against abortion. Well, we are against abortion. They they think we're against homosexuality. Well, we are. But we should be presenting our message, not so much what we're against, but what we're for. That we are for life and the womb. We are for life uh, and respecting of life and the end of life. We are for the sanctity of marriage and uh if we can present that then it's i think that's a changes the whole direction of everything and then it doesn't sound political because political is often negative now let's say what we're for that's theological and and, and that's the that is the difference that in the secular world whether you're talking politics or talking secular debate, the only tool that they have is the tool of the law. And all they can do with that is, is tear down or set up new rules to try to compel you to do something different. Um, but as, as a Christian and as a Christian church, we have the gospel, which in and of itself, by its own power, creates beautiful things. And, and in, under that gospel view, um, we see the, the blessing that God has given, that the God who has given us everything in Christ continues to give his blessings as we live out our vocations with one another. Um, and to be able to, to speak positively about that is, um, is really, you know, leads us easily directly into a gospel conversation. 
All right, well, we'll wrap it up here. Thanks for the discussion. And we'll talk more about the Magdeburg Confession at the, at the next episode.